It is an honor and a privilege to be back in Mobile today. I think they set me over here by David Bullock to humble me today. I said, David, how old are you? He said, I'm 27. I was just a little bit younger than him when I came to Mobile and just a little bit older than him when I left Mobile to go and to be a missionary over to Mississippi. And it really humbled me to uh, realize he wasn't even born when I was uh, here in Mobile. I have children older than he is. I'm going through an era in my life, I'm beginning to preach for my contemporaries' sons. And that really makes you feel like you're long in the tooth or you've been doing what I've been doing for a long time. I know that you have been joining me in praying for our pastor. And we are looking forward to him coming back next Sunday. I wish I could be here with you for that. I will be in Savannah, Georgia doing a four-day crusade. But I really have been praying for him as I know you have. And I've enjoyed talking with him over the phone. I want to tell you a little story that I told Brother Fred the other day to try to lift his spirit. Billy Graham is 93 years of age now. When Mr. Graham was 87, he was flown to the Mayo Clinic for a special examination. And they flew him there on a charter plane. When he arrived, they had sent a limousine to pick him up. When he disembarked this part of the plane, he came down the steps and he said to the limousine driver, he said, listen, I've never driven one of those, and I really would like to drive that limousine today if you don't mind. The driver said, I'd be honored for you to drive. He said, well, you get in the back with my other friends and just let me drive. So Mr. Graham began driving to the hospital. About halfway there, there was a, a young state trooper in Minnesota who was uh, doing his first stakeout, doing his first speed trap. And he clocked Mr. Graham doing 70 in a 55 mile per hour zone. Well, when he pulled him over, he had the light flashing. He got out, went up. The electric window came down. And when he saw Billy Graham, he was absolutely startled. Man, he stepped back. He said, excuse me, sir. You just wait right there and relax. I need to go back and talk to my superiors. So he went back and he got on the horn and he, he called his boss. And he said, now listen, I know that you want us to make people obey the law and abide by the law. But I also know that you extend some simple courtesies to some people. And I'm in one of those situations and I need to know what to do. I've stopped a very important person. So his boss said, well, is it the governor? He said, oh no, it's someone much more important than the governor. He said, is it the president? He said, no, it's someone much more important than the president. He said, well, who is it? He said, well, I'm not sure, but I think it's Jesus because he has Billy Graham for a chauffeur. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> Take your Bibles today and turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of John. John's Gospel and the 14th chapter. I want to preach this morning on this subject, homesick for heaven. When I was a boy growing up in a textile mill village back in my hometown of Greenville, South Carolina, they used to sing an old song entitled, This World is Not My Home, I'm Only Passing Through. I don't hear that song too often anymore. I was preaching in Birmingham not long ago and someone sang it and I was startled to hear that. It carried me back to my childhood. The Apostle Paul concurred with that when he said in Corinthians, If in this life only we have hope, we're of all men most miserable. Now I don't know about you, but I'll be honest with you. I'm enjoying life more now than I ever have. I'm enjoying the blessings of God. I'm enjoying my ministry more than ever, the ministry that God's given to us. I'm enjoying my family. I'm enjoying all of the things that God is letting me experience, express, and enjoy. But I'll also be transparently honest with you and tell you that I'd hate to think that this 
is all that there is. Thank God for those of us who are the blood-bought, born-again children of God. We're going on to a better place. Amen? And we know it's a better place because the Savior Himself promised us that He's gone to personally prepare it for you and me. In one of our meetings not long ago, a man came up to me after the service. He said, I'd like to ask you a question. Considering all that has happened, contemplating where we are now, and considering what could happen at any time, he said, aren't you afraid? I said, oh, if I wasn't a Christian, if I hadn't read the Bible, if I hadn't read the last page, if I didn't know how it was all going to turn out and I didn't know where I was going, I would literally be scared to death. Because you see, since Jesus came, other men see only a hopeless end. But praise God, the Christian rejoices in an endless hope. Why? Because we're not moving from the land of the living to the land of the dying. Praise God, we're moving from the land of the dying to the land of the living. Losers focus only on what they're going through. Winners, victors in Christ, they focus on what they're going to. And praise the Lord, because of Jesus Christ, what He has done for us and what He has done in us. We're going on to a much better world. I want you to see what Jesus had to say about it in John's Gospel, chapter 14 and beginning in verse 1. You remember as a backdrop for this passage that the disciples had been with Jesus for three years. They'd traveled with Him, they'd eaten with Him, they'd slept with Him. They'd been with Him practically 24-7. Now He's talking about going away and leaving them behind to do the work. They become obsessed and possessed with fear. A couple of them are even wondering who's going to be seated on the right hand in the kingdom. That's when Jesus spoke these immortal, pertinent, and relevant words, not only to them, but to you and me living almost 2,000 years later. Pick up the reading with me in verse 1 and notice what he said. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then shall I come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. But Thomas answered and said unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And let me pause right there to say that I don't know about you, but there are times that I really identify with old Thomas. You see, for those of us on this side of the cross, sometimes we have a tendency to get down on Simon Peter and on Thomas. You remember old open his mouth to change feet Peter? Seems like every time you see him saying something in the New Testament, he's sticking his foot in his mouth. Because how often did he get his mouth in gear before he got his mind in action? But I've always been amazed at how patient the Lord Jesus was with him. He was just long-suffering with him, and he'd keep bringing him along until Peter would get it. And Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas. Have you ever wondered why we call him that? Because every time you see him saying something in the New Testament, he's putting a question mark over whatever the Lord says. But if you and I were to be transparently honest about it, we really shouldn't get down on Simon Peter and on Thomas. Because most of the time they verbalize and vocalize what most of us are saying or thinking. We just don't want anyone else to know that that's what's really on our mind. And besides, if they hadn't opened their mouth and said many of the things they said, we wouldn't have some of the greatest principles, greatest truths, and greatest verses in all of God's Word. Thomas answered and said unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus answered and said unto him, I am the way. 
the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Literally, in the original language in which it was written, Jesus said in verse 6, I am the true and living way. No man knows God other than through me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I've been asked to come here today to preach and to tell the truth. Did you know it's no longer popular in America to preach and to tell the truth? Did you know if you do that, you're considered to not be politically correct? Well, I'll be honest with you that I'd rather live with a pure conscience that brings about personal convictions that are Christ-centered and biblically based than to be politically correct any day. And besides, I don't see that politically correct crowd making much of an impact for Christ on our world. There are two very dangerous threats to the American way of life, to the Christian, and to the church today. And you and I must not stick our head in the sand like an ostrich and pretend that they do not exist. We need to know what we believe, why we believe it, and we need to stand on it today more than ever before in the history of our great nation. Here's what those two dangers are. One is what I call subtle universalism. What do I mean by subtle universalism? I mean by that, that Hollywood, television, and the world would lead you to believe that anybody and everybody's going to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe, how you live, or whether you've made a personal commitment of your life to Jesus Christ or not. Well, ladies and gentlemen, draw real close and listen to me carefully. I've never been more convinced than I am at this very moment that God loves every human being alive on planet Earth that Jesus Christ died for every human being, drawing breath of life, that God has a will, purpose, and plan for every individual life. I've never been more convinced that the Bible is true when it says over in Peter that it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But I want to tell you today, I take that so seriously. I leave my home and my family every week of my life to go wherever God leads us to go across America or around the world to help as many people as possible to know Jesus Christ in a personal way and to be able to live with the assurance that they're going to heaven when they die as well as experiencing the abundant life of Christ this side of the grave. But not everybody's going to heaven and nobody's going to heaven unless they've done what the Bible says you must do. They have personally received Jesus Christ as their Savior. You'll either be saved, know God, and go to heaven through Jesus Christ, or you won't be saved, know God, and go to heaven at all. The second danger facing us is religious pluralism. Here's what the religious pluralists say. They would say it's all right for Fred Wolf and Lynn Turner and other preachers like them to get up on Sunday and tell you that Jesus is the only way to God. But you've got to remember those guys are obsolete. They're old-fashioned. They're out of date. They're still biblicists. And you've got to remember now that they don't understand the culture and they're not moving with the culture. They'll say it's all right for them to tell you that, but you've got to be broad-minded and you've got to remember that Jesus is just one of the ways to God, salvation and heaven. No, my friend, let's let the record show Jesus is not one of the ways to God's salvation in heaven. He is the only way to God's salvation in heaven. And if He is not the only way, then He's not one of the ways. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there any other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Save the name Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, my friend, I could never worship. I could never praise. I could never adore. I could never commit my life to Buddha, Confucius, 
Mohammed, or any other man-made God or false religion in the world. And here's why. They were not with God in the beginning when he created the heavens and the earth. They were not a part of the Godhead bodily in fullness that spoke it all into being. They were not born supernaturally of a virgin in a supernatural, miraculous way. Praise God, Jesus was born of the Spirit, whereby you and I could be born again of the Spirit. They did not live a perfect, spotless, stainless, sinless life. They were not sacrificed on Calvary's cross for my sins, and not for my sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. They were not taken off of that cruel Roman cross, buried in a barred Roman tomb. They did not stay there for three days and then burst forth from the grave, win in victory over Satan, sin, death, and the grave. They didn't live on this earth for 50 days after rising from the dead, preaching and teaching and preparing people for the coming kingdom. They didn't ascend back to heaven on a cloud to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where Hebrews 7.25 says He ever lives to make intercession for you and me, that He lives every day to pray for you and me as His precious children. They are not literally, visibly, imminently, gloriously coming back to this earth the second time, one day real soon. They do not have the capacity nor the capability to enter your life and my life to change us, transform us, completely make us a new creation. Praise God, only Jesus Christ has done those things. Only Jesus Christ can do those things. And today, you and I don't need to back up and apologize for believing that, nor do I need to apologize for preaching that to a world that desperately needs Jesus Christ this very hour. There's never been another one like him ever born among men. Praise the name of Jesus. In John 14, Jesus gave us three wonderful truths about heaven. I want to point them out to you. You might just want to jot them down and keep them for future reference or for future posterity. Number one, Jesus said that heaven is real. Heaven is real. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is reality. Zygmunt Freud explained heaven as a human fantasy rooted in man's instinct for self-preservation. A very liberal Harvard philosopher, Alfred and Whitehead, once said, and I quote, Can you imagine anything more appallingly idiotic than the Christian idea and concept of heaven? Unquote. Well, let's just be objective together this morning. Let's ask ourselves several questions. Is heaven merely a myth? Is it only a fantasy? Is it simply a wish? Is it just a state of mind? No. Heaven is a real place. You say, well, Brother Lynn, how can you say that so authoritatively? Man, you haven't been there yet. You haven't seen it yet. You haven't experienced it firsthand yet as far as eternity goes. Then how can you say that? We know that heaven is real, that it is a real place, that it is the ultimate reality for the believer because Jesus said so. We have Jesus' word on that. And praise God, according to the Bible, in Hebrews 6, 18, and in Titus 1, 2, Jesus Christ cannot lie. He is absolutely trustworthy. He told his disciples not to worry about death. And then he gave them the reason. Look in verse 2. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. I want you to underline or circle the word mansions. Literally, the Greek word there is abode. It means a dwelling place, a habitat, a house, a home, a structure. Paul said in Corinthians, we have a home, a house built for us in the heavens, reserved for us, not made with hands, but built by the Lord himself. 
I'm such a biblicist. I take the Bible so literally that I've never been more convinced than I am today that for every professing believer from the youngest to the oldest, from the one who's been saved the shortest amount of time to the one who's been saved the longest amount of time, we have our own personal mansion, abode, habitat, house, home, structure, over in the glory, built for us by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Notice what he said in verse 3. I go to prepare a what? A place for you. Now if he says something once, that ought to be sufficient. But if he repeats it, we definitely ought to pay close attention to it. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then shall I come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Praise God, heaven is a prepared place for prepared people that's been prepared by a perfect Savior that has a perfect will for each and every individual life. Therefore, Zygmunt Freud, Alfred and Whitehead, the secular humanists are wrong. Jesus Christ is right. Oh, I'll readily admit to you today, heaven cannot be proved scientifically. The Christian faith cannot be reduced to a mathematical formula. You can't put Christianity in a test tube. It cannot be demonstrated and proven by scientific experiment. Christianity is believed and known by faith and by faith alone. There comes a time, even in the spiritual realm, when we have to believe what we cannot prove and even accept what we cannot fully understand if it's ever to be a reality to us. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't have much faith in a God that I could totally, thoroughly comprehend and contemplate with my finite mind or that I could just explain, reason, and rationalize everything about him in every way. And I don't feel like I have to crucify my intellect or deny my education in order to do that. I simply believe that the Bible is the divinely inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. I believe every word of God is true. It doesn't just contain the word of God. It is the word of God. And it is still very relevant and pertinent to our day and time. Well, the question always arises... If heaven is real, what is heaven really like? What kind of a place is it? R.G. Lee, one of the greatest Baptist preachers that ever lived, once said that heaven is the most beautiful place that the mind of God could conceive and that the hand of God could ever create. Adrian Rogers told me an interesting story one day. He said that Billy Graham came to Memphis to conduct a citywide crusade. And they asked Dr. Rogers to be chairman. He said, when Mr. Graham arrived in Memphis, he said, now, Adrian... The one thing I want to do while I'm here, other than preaching the gospel and preaching for souls, is I'd like to go and see Dr. R.G. Lee just one more time. Dr. Rogers said Dr. Lee was still alive then. And the pastor said, well, he's in a semi-comitose state. We never know when he's going to be conscious. He lives with his daughter. She's his caretaker. But I will call and I'll try to arrange it. So when he called Dr. Lee's daughter, she said, oh, yes, pastor, please come. Papa would definitely want to see Billy Graham. So Adrian said they drove over to the backside of Memphis to an older area, and they pulled up in front of an older home. They went up and rang the doorbell, and they were escorted through the house into the back bedroom. And there was the great man of God propped up in bed, large, thick pillows behind his back. His silver hair was glistening. He had on fresh pajamas. And Adrian Rogers told me when they went into their room, Dr. Lee's eyes were closed. But he said Dr. Lee's countenance of that entire room, so radiated with the glory of God, that you could sense the very presence of the Lord when you went into that room. His daughter went over and leaned over and whispered in his ear. She said, Papa, Billy Graham has come to see you. And Adrian said when she said that, Dr. Lee's eyes popped wide open. They were crystal clear. And for just a few brief moments, he had all of his mental faculties. 
and he motioned them over to the bed one by one. Adrian Rogers went over and somehow he mustered enough strength to hug his neck as best he could. He said, oh, pastor, I want to thank you for being faithful to the Bible and faithful to preaching Jesus Christ. And then he motioned for Billy Graham to come to his bedside. And when he did, he said, oh, Billy, my boy, I'm so glad you came to see me because I have a word for you from the Lord. You must continue to go to the far corners of the earth and tell people that there is a heaven to gain, a hell to shun, and a Savior to love. He said, just the other night, the Lord did a wonderful thing for me. He gave me a brief preview of heaven. He said, my mother was there. Lady Lee, my faithful companion of many years, were there. Many of those I've helped to Christ and pastored and baptized, they were there. He said, it's the most beautiful, glorious, majestic sight that my eyes have ever beheld. It was a bright, beautiful, radiant light. And you must not stop doing what you're doing until you can't go anymore. You've got to go and tell people. That's what awaits those who will deposit their faith, hope, trust, and belief in Jesus Christ. It's like the little girl blind from birth, having had delicate eye surgery, and she sees for the first time. And when she does, she begins to cry out to her mother, Oh, mother, why didn't you tell me it would all be so beautiful? Her mother, through tears of joy, said, Sweetheart, I tried to tell you, but I simply couldn't put it into words how beautiful it would be when you saw it all for the first time. That's the way it is with heaven. Even the divinely inspired writers of the Word of God struggle to find ways to adequately describe the wonders of heaven to you and me. Let me show you what one of them said. It's the same man who penned the Gospel of John. Turn to your right and go to the last book of the Bible. Go with me over to the Revelation, to the next, to the last chapter in the Bible. And go with me, if you will, please, to verse 1 through 4. Revelation chapter 21 and verses 1 through 4. I want you to see what he said about it. John is an old man now. He's reached the age of 80, but he's remained faithful and true to Jesus Christ and to the Word of God. The Roman officials got very upset with the old preacher. Man, he'd been having a street revival. He'd been calling the people to give allegiance to someone else other than Caesar and the Roman government. So they got a group of the wisest, most sagacious scribes in the land together. The most intelligent group of men they had. They said, we're going to let you decide what we do with this old preacher. One wise scribe spoke up and said, well, don't kill him. Don't make a martyr out of him. If you do that, everybody will flock to his message then. They said, that's a brilliant suggestion. They waited for another, and finally, after a long silence, the most brilliant one of all the scholars spoke up and said, well, if you really want to hurt him, you really want to make him suffer, don't do any physical bodily harm to him. Just take him out to a lonely, desolate island out in the middle of the Mediterranean, a place like the Isle of Patmos. Just take him up on the side of a mountain and just deposit him there in a deep, cavernous cave and just leave him alone. And that way, you've not done any physical bodily harm to him, but the old man will lose his mind. He'll go insane and you put an end to his ministry and you put an end to the revival. And they said, that's a brilliant idea. That's precisely what they did. But I'm thrilled to report to you today, praise God, they didn't put an end to what God was doing. They just relocated it, praise the Lord. Because the Bible says in Revelation 4.1 that he was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And God gave him a vision like he'd never given to any other man. And he said, John, write down everything that you see. And those who read it and believe it and adhere to it, they shall be blessed. But those who miss it, refuse it, resist it, and reject it, they shall be cursed. And look in your Bible in Revelation 21 and verse 1 and notice what he said, and I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride, prepared, where we already seen that word twice, in John 14, 3, prepared and adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with them. And God shall be with them, and he shall be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For all the former things are passed away. Praise God, I want you to go back to verse 2 and see how he pictures heaven. He pictures heaven as a bride prepared and adorned for her husband. I had the privilege of serving as an associate pastor and a pastor for about 28 years. I've not pastored now in over 15 years. Sometimes there's some things I miss about being a pastor. I usually get over it pretty quick, but there's some things I miss about being a pastor. One of them is doing weddings. I used to love to do weddings. I know some preachers that can't stand to do weddings. They'd rather do a funeral. Than to do it. I never have understood that. That might be why some of the brethren are so morbid. They'd rather bury people than marry people. Man, I, I tell you, funerals drained me and took more out of me than anything I ever did as a pastor. But man, I loved weddings. I would meet with the couple at least twice, sometimes three times if it necessitated it, in my office for some very private, personal pastoral counseling, covering all aspects of married life and trying to help them prepare to build a marriage, a family, a home based on Jesus Christ. And on the Word of God. I was privileged to pastor churches that were large, so I had to have a lady in the church to direct weddings, like Miss Marie Rubley used to do for us here in Mobile all the time. They would handle that. They would handle the rehearsal. Usually I wouldn't have to go to the rehearsal. However, if the family invited my wife, Pansy, and me to come to the rehearsal dinner, we always made it a point to go because it gave us an opportunity to spend quality time with that family and have a personal touch with them. On wedding day, I'll always remember that, the uh, groom, the best man, and I always stood over here outside a door, and we would come in on a certain signal, usually a song being played by one of the instrumentalists or a song being sung by someone. We would take our place at the front and wait for the wedding party to come in. I'd always coach the groom. I'd say, now you look back at her with a fixed, focused, concentrated gaze. You look at her as though she's the only thing in all the world that matters to you right now. And don't you take your eyes off of her. Now, I didn't have to coach him too much on that, but I'd always do that. Down the aisle, she would come on the arm of the one who was going to give her in marriage. I tell you, that's a very sweet and a very special time. I've had to do it twice. A number of you have had to do it on occasions. It's not always easy when you're the father, and it's not always easy when you are the father of the bride. Brother Fred helped me with our our weddings so that I I could get through it, he and my brother, and I'm so thankful that they did. I'll never forget when I was pastoring up in Jackson, Mississippi. One Saturday afternoon, I was doing a wedding for Jim Blankenship's family, and Brother Jim never said much. He was a very quiet man, but when he said something, usually it was very profound. Brother Jim comes down the aisle with Marie on his arm. They get right in front of me, and I said, now, who gives Marie to wed James today? He looked at me as sincere as a man can and said, preacher, I'll be honest with you. Me and the First National Bank, that's who gives her to wed him today. If you've been there, you know what I mean. A young lady is seldom more radiantly beautiful or more beautifully radiant than she is on her wedding day. Usually more time, more planning, and bless God, if you're like me and found out the hard way, more money have gone into that appearance than any other in her entire life. And when I went through it, here's what I learned. 
They weren't the least bit interested in what I thought, how I felt, or what my opinion was. Basically, they told me to shut up and pay. That's all they wanted me to do. And if you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Our youngest, Ashley, was married now. It's hard to believe, but it's been uh, about nine years ago now that she was married. I'll never forget the first of June that year, I rushed home. I was so homesick to see Pansy and see our children, but most of all, to see my grandchildren. I'm telling you, when I was a pastor, people would come up and show me pictures of their grandchildren. They'd ooh and ah and carry on and brag. I never said this, but I'll be honest with you, on more than one occasion, I thought to myself, those are the silliest people I believe I've ever met. Listen, I'm a thousand times sillier than any of them ever were. If I'd known grandchildren would go be so great, bless God, I had them first and bypassed my kids now. I really would have. <laughs> Somebody says that grandchildren are the reward for putting up with your children. Ours didn't give us any trouble, but I'll tell you this. I think there might be an element of truth there. You don't love them more than you love your children, but you love them differently. Praise God, the biggest difference is you get to give them back. You don't have to keep them. <laughs> my children can come to my house, my grandchildren, and spend a, a day. And best God, when they leave Pansy and I have to go to bed for a day and a half in order to recover. <laughs> God knows what He's doing when He gives little children and young children to young couples. They have the energy to take care of them. But I'm telling you, a young lady is seldom more radiantly beautiful nor more beautifully radiant than she is on her wedding day. And when she stands at the altar with her bridegroom, especially if she's done it God's way, if she has saved and preserved herself and saved her very best for the man to whom she's giving herself, it is a beautiful picture of beauty and of purification and of cleanliness. Thank God that there are still people with convictions today that want to do it God's way. Later on, John wasn't finished. He not only described heaven as a bride. He described heaven as a city. That means it's a place where there's adequate protection. A place of safety and security. But John still wasn't finished. He not only described heaven as a bride and as a city. He described it as a garden. That means it's a place of abundant provision. A place of prosperity and plenty. But John still wasn't finished. He not only described heaven as a bride and a city and a garden. He described it as a tabernacle. That means it's a place of an abiding presence. A place where there's complete and unhindered fellowship with God forever. Look in Revelation 21 and verse 1. He refers to a new heaven and a new earth. There are two words for new in the New Testament. One means new in appearance. The other means new in kind. That which has never existed before. That's the word that is used here. The new heaven and the new earth will not be this old planet renovated. Praise God, it'll be something altogether different in kind. Now, in order to adequately describe the newness of heaven, John was forced to use some negatives. He said, it's only when we understand what won't be there that we can fully appreciate and understand what will be there. So if you'll take your Bible and begin following me in Revelation 21 and verse 1, we'll see that John said in heaven, there will be no more sea in verse 1. That means nothing that separates. Go down with me to verse 4. He said in heaven, there'll be no more tears. That means nothing that saddens. Again, in verse 4, he said, there'd be no more death. That means nothing that grieves. Again, in verse 4, he said, there'd be no more pain. That means nothing that hurts. Go down to verse 25, if you will. He said, there would be no more night. That means nothing that frightens. Look on to verse 27. He said, there'd be no more sin. That means nothing that defiles. Thank God we won't have to clean up after it anymore. And we won't have to minister to innocent victims who get hurt. Because of sin in people's lives. Think about it with me, ladies and gentlemen. No ambulances screaming down those golden streets. 
No funeral wreaths hung on matching doors there. No obituary columns in the heavenly newspaper. No cemeteries on windswept hillsides. And consider this. No more bodies up there gnarled by arthritis. No more blind eyes. No more crippled limbs. No one ever again up there wasted by that dreadful disease called cancer. No one up there suffering from debilitating diseases. Like my precious little 14-year-old granddaughter from diabetes and other things that they tell us are incurable. Think about it further with me. Just contemplate this in your mind. No broken marriages. No abused children. No wayward children in the heavenly home. Oh, I'm telling you, down here, men walk on God and worship gold. But praise God up there, we're going to worship God and walk on gold forever. No wonder the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath gone to prepare for them that love the Lord at His appearing. An elderly, grief-stricken woman suffering from the passing of one of her daughters boarded a large ocean liner bound from London, England to New York City to visit her other surviving daughter. While at sea, a severe storm struck and the passengers frantically raced for the lifeboats. This lady showed absolutely no panic whatsoever. Finally, a young man out of deep concern for her rushed to her with a life jacket and said, Ma'am, don't you know we might all sink and die? you got to let me help you into this life jacket and help you in to that lifeboat. To which she quietly and resolutely replied, Well, I have one daughter in heaven and one daughter in New York City, and it really doesn't make any difference to me which one of them I get to see first. What a glorious promise. Let me ask you a question today. Do you have someone that was very near and dear to you? Someone you really love? Someone was very close to your heart who's in heaven today. Don't you miss them more today than you did the day that they went to heaven? But listen, friend, I want to give you assurance. Don't say that you've lost them. Because when you lose something, you don't know where it is. Praise God, you not only know where they are, but you know that if you're a child of God as well, you've not seen them for the last time, you're going to get to see them again. And their being in heaven just makes heaven seem so much nearer to you and me. Oh, some days I get to thinking about some of the people I've loved that have had a profound influence on my life, my grandfather and some others, and some days I think I'd give anything if I could see Poppy again and just talk to him for about 15 minutes and just let him know about my grandchildren and all the blessings of God. Somehow I think he probably knows. But I want to tell you, if God were to peel back the portals of glory and we could look over there and see where they are and we could see what they're experiencing, we wouldn't want them back here for anything in all the world. And I'll be honest with you, there's some people I'm really looking forward to seeing. But glory be to God, most of all, when we get there, I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus. And when we see Jesus, everything we had to go through down here, praise God, it will be worth it all then when we get to see Him. Go back with me to John 14 very quickly. I can only mention this second and the third point. Not only is heaven real, but if you go back to John 14, heaven is ready. How do we know it's ready? Because Jesus said in John 14, 3, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then shall I come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also. Praise God. We know that heaven is prepared and heaven is perfect because Jesus himself went to make it. He doesn't make any junk. He doesn't do a halfway job. He is very thorough and very complete. Think of it. The carpenter of Nazareth who must have built many a home in his day has gone to build a mansion for you and me. And praise God, one day real soon, He's coming back and going to take us to be with Him there. In the fall of 2001, one of my heroes, 
Probably the greatest man of God that I've ever known. A modern day Apostle Paul went home to be with the Lord. I was asked to come back and help with his funeral. I was unable to do so because of my travel schedule. That man's name was J. Harold Smith. He was a great radio preacher, a great evangelist, a great pastor. Pastored some great churches. J. Harold Smith and I came from the same part of the country. The Piedmont section of South Carolina. J. Harold Smith was gloriously saved on Sunday afternoon, September the 4th, 1932. He was at his sister's home sitting on a front porch in one of those old porch swings. And his sister, a very godly Christian woman, looked over at him and said, Harold, you've tried everything the devil had to offer. Why don't you just give God a chance in your life? J. Harold Smith told me he turned to curse his sister, but that the words never came. And before he realized it, he dropped out of his swing, down on his knees, and then literally prostrate on the floor and began calling on God to save him. God not only gloriously saved him, but before he got up off of his face, God had placed a distinct divine call on his life to preach the gospel. He said that everywhere he went for the next year, he witnessed to anything and everything that moved in the church, out of church. Preached everywhere he could, not only in the church, but on street corners. My grandfather told me he broke up a big uh, square dance on the main square of Hendersonville, North Carolina one night. He got a permit from the city fathers to set up a flatbed truck, have gospel singing groups, and then he preached. The dance broke up and hundreds of people got saved. Man, here was a man that God had his hand on and God anointed. He said his own family thought that he was having a nervous breakdown. He would see family members on the street and they would literally run to get away from him. They thought he was losing his mind. Everybody except his paternal grandfather, Grandfather Smith, who was a full-blooded Irishman and really loved the Lord. And he referred to Jay Harrell as my boy. He said one night, a little over a year later in 1933... Grandfather Smith was on his deathbed, and as was the custom in those days, they were parading all of the family by to say goodbye to Grandfather Smith. He said he was standing about four people away from him, and the thought hit him. He said, wait a minute, I'm just a young Christian and a young preacher. What am I going to say to my grandfather that's so deep with the Lord and loves the Lord and served him so faithfully for so long? But he said when he got up over his grandfather, that his grandfather helped him. He reached up and grabbed the lapels on his jacket and pulled him down and whispered to him. He said, now, my boy... I'll be in heaven before the sun comes up on earth tomorrow morning. But he said, when I get home, I'm going to ask the Lord to let my job be helping him to work on your mansion, helping him to build your mansion. So he said, you be sure and send me up some good material every day with which I can build your mansion. He said, Grandfather, I don't understand. He said, you set as a goal to win one person to Jesus Christ for every day you live. Before you come to join me in heaven. J. Harold said his first thought was that's virtually impossible. Man, it can't be done. But he said, I wanted to comply with the wishes of a dying man. And besides, my grandfather had a hold of my lapel with what little strength he had left. And said he wasn't going to let go until I made that commitment to the Lord. And I promised him. So he said he dropped to his knees and made the commitment to the Lord. And promised his grandfather. And he said when he did, the most unusual holy sensation came over him. Did you know, and you can contact the Radio Bible Hour in Newport, Tennessee, and they will confirm what I'm about to tell you. They'll give it to you in writing. When you went to heaven in December of 2001, there is a record. Now, no doubt there are more that we don't know about, and only heaven will reveal the real record, because only God's really keeping adequate records. But there is a record, and it can be verified and substantiated, that God used Harold Smith to average leading over three people to Christ per day, for every day that he lived after that night in 1933, he preached one sermon, God's three deadlines, in which there is a record. No doubt there are more that we don't know about. But there is a record that over 1.9 million people received Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
Over 800 preachers that went out to preach the gospel were saved under Harold Smith's ministry. And then they were called to preach later. And they went out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you ever got an opportunity to hear him preach that sermon on God's three deadlines. I had him to come to every church that I pastored. And it's the most remarkable message I've ever heard a man of God preach. He gave about 25 live illustrations. He talked about the three deadly sins, the unpardonable sin, sending away your day of grace and the sin unto death. The first two can be committed only by lost people. The third one can only be committed by Christians. I must have heard him preach it 15 times. But man, every time I heard him preach it, I bowed my head and made sure I was right with God. I've never heard anything like it in all of my life. The last time I had him to preach it, he preached it at the First Baptist Church of Merritt Island, Florida, one Sunday morning. We started the service at 10.15. We didn't get out until 2 o'clock that day. Nobody ever amens that when I say that. I know what you did. You drew up real tight. You got so tight we couldn't get a bobby pin under your armpit. That's how tight you got. You thought, oh, Lynn's going to see if he can go that long. Relax. I wouldn't last that long. But I'll tell you what. That day nobody left. People didn't get up and go in and out. We were all afraid we'd miss something. He preached that message, and when he gave the invitation, 86 people came forward to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. That night, we baptized 82 of them. I'd never baptized left-handed in my life. I baptized 41 people left-handed, wore out three associate pastors, baptizing the other 41 right-handed. Harold Smith did something that day I've never seen happen before. I was amazed at seeing it happen that day. He took a microphone like these microphones right here. He set himself over on this side of the platform, and he made me go over on that side. We had about 300 trained counselors, and we had counseling rooms patterned after the counseling ministry of the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida. He brought all 86 of those people up one by one on the platform, put the microphone under the nose and said, now tell us in your own words what happened to you today. Now some of them turned purple, but they got it out. Here's the reason I'm telling you this story. In that line that day was a young lady I'd never seen, did not know, never laid eyes on her. She was 25 years old from Brooklyn, New York. And people like you and me who've been born and reared in the Bible Belt deep south find this hard to believe. But she was 25 years old. She had never been in a Baptist church, never heard a gospel message, and never heard the name of Jesus used in its proper context. It's hard to believe that there are people like that in the world. I've run into some of them these last years that I've been on the road, 15, 16 years preaching the gospel. Well, she got in line. I didn't know her. He didn't know her. He put the mic under her nose and said, young lady, tell us in your own words what happened to you today. So help me, this is a direct quote. He told this everywhere he went until he went to heaven. She said, I'll tell you exactly what happened to me today. She said, you scared the hell out of me. That's what happened to me today. <laughs> Jay Harold took that mic and jerked that mic back and he came marching over here to me and he said, Brother Lynn, in 55 years I've never heard anybody say that to me in church. I said, well, Gerald, I've never heard anybody say that in church either. But I said, I don't think the young lady meant it with a profane connotation that we've always attached to it. And I looked at her and I felt so sorry for her. She was embarrassed. She said, oh, pastor, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say the wrong thing. But she said, I haven't grown up in church. I don't know the church lingo. I'll never forget her saying that. She said, I don't know how to say what I want to say. She said, all I know is it's the greatest news I've ever heard. Why hadn't somebody told me about it before now? And I'm just so thankful I don't have to die and go to hell and forever be separated from God. But I can go to heaven and live there forever because of what Jesus did for me. She hadn't been saved 10 minutes and she already understood what it was all about. And J. Harrell, like many great men of God, Brother Fred and others that I've been around, they think quick on their feet because they're filled and led by the Spirit of God. He said, young lady, you're absolutely right. Hell did come out of you today, and heaven went into you in the person, the power, and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll never forget that experience as long as I live. 
And ever since that day, I've been looking for people like that young lady everywhere I go across America to tell them about Jesus. I want to tell you something, friend. Heaven's not only real. Heaven's not only ready. Heaven's restricted. Comes as a shock to a lot of people. But heaven's an exclusive neighborhood. But this exclusion is not a matter of race. It's not a matter of face. It's not a matter of place. It's strictly a matter of grace. Anybody and everybody is welcome and invited. But only those who put their faith, hope, trust, and belief in Jesus Christ can go there. And you make your reservation in this life by the commitment you make of your life to Christ. And when you do that, your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. You're saved, sealed, and secure. You have a place in God's forever family. You've just become a blood-bought, born-again member of God's kingdom. You're one of God's children. You're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He covers your past, your sins, your mistakes, your faults. You don't have to live under guilt. You don't have to live under condemnation. All that's been washed as white as snow in the blood of Jesus Christ. And you know for sure that if you die within the next six 60 seconds, you'll go to heaven to be with Him because of what He's done for you and what He's done in you. Jesus didn't come just to show us the way. Praise God, He is the way. He didn't come just to tell us the truth. He is the truth. He didn't come just to give us life. He is our life. Man, someone asked me not long ago, why do you get so passionate about it? I'll tell you why. Recently, a recent Gallup poll said that 91% of all Americans now believe that there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. Isn't that a great comfort to know that finally 91% of our people are going to believe what God's been telling us all along? Second reason is eternity is too long to be wrong. Don't be wrong on this matter, my friend. I could stop 10 people on the main street of Mobile, Alabama tomorrow afternoon and say, what do you think it takes to get to heaven? And I'd get 10 different answers. Recently, they, st- they did a survey on Peachtree Street in Atlanta. They stopped 30 people. Only three people out of 30 came anywhere close to explaining how to go to heaven the way that I preached it to you today. Eternity is too long to be wrong. It's not a matter of what you think, how you feel, and what our opinion is. It's a matter of what God has said, what God has done, and what God can do inside of us today if we only give Him an opportunity to do it. And then, my friend, I'll be honest with you. It is not my job. It's not the job of Brother Fred. It's not the job of any other man of God to make people comfortable who are on their way to hell. We live in a day and time today that the gospel is being watered down. Convictions are being compromised. Standards are being lowered. And we're preaching, there are things being preached just to tickle people's ear. Make them feel comfortable. Make them feel good. Do good, touch good, feel good. And just do everything but what the Bible has told us to do. Don't misunderstand me. The last thing in the world I'd want to do would be to offend you or to make you mad. But I also want to be honest with you and tell you I'm not afraid of anybody in this room. Now, if I thought making you mad would help you to get right with God, I'd run the risk of making you mad. Because after you got right with God, praise God, you wouldn't be mad anymore. And not only that, you'd find out you weren't really mad at me. It's your own life. It's your sin. And it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit at work in your heart and in your life. If I had a thousand lives live all over again, I'd give every one of them to Jesus Christ. If I were not a Christian today, I wouldn't go another five seconds without totally giving my life to Christ and inviting Him to come to live inside of me. If I were a Christian today that had sin in my life and I wasn't ready to meet God, oh, I know I'd be saved and I wouldn't be afraid to do it. But if there was anything that would cause me to be ashamed to stand before the Lord today, I wouldn't go another five seconds without letting God make it right in my heart and in my life. Nobody has ever loved you like Jesus. Nobody has ever done for you what Jesus has done. And nobody can do for you what only Christ can do in your heart.
and in your life if you'll just turn your life completely over to Him. Thank God for the Lord Jesus. Virgin born, sinless lived, sacrificially offered, victoriously risen, gloriously ascended, triumphantly coming. He is still King of kings and Lord of lords and always, always will be. Praise His holy name.